Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Hanberg, and I'm a forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and this is Becoming a Medical Examiner. On this podcast, I interview other forensic pathologists, and we talk about our job as medical examiners and what it's been like for us. And today, I'm joined by Dr. Amanda Hirsch. So, Amanda, would you mind introducing yourself? I'm Dr. Amanda Hirsch. I am the current forensic pathology fellow at the Denver Office of the Medical Examiner, and I'm also a board-certified anatomic pathologist. And the way I start every podcast is I would really like if you could just tell me, how do you describe our job? What do you tell people that you do? Typically, what I tell people is that I perform autopsies for a living. Great. Yeah, that's very simple. And I think most people know what an (laughs) autopsy is. So that usually gets the point across. And I I think that's pretty fair, right? That's something that we, we all do. That's a major component of our job. It's usually the thing people have questions about. It's why we testify. So autopsy is a pretty central component. Do you ever clarify further, you know, what that means? Well, it depends on the person's reaction because typically it's a very divisive type of thing to say. Either people are fascinated by it or terrified of it. So if there's interest gauged, I can further that up with, you know, it's a very important examination. It's the final physician visit for this individual. Um, Their body tells me a story that I'm very humbled and honored to learn about. I write that in a report and I communicate my findings to families and sometimes courts. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned something that it just occurred to me. You said it's their final physician visit. And when you say we do autopsies for a living, I think you're the first person I've spoken to that doesn't explicitly mention that we're a subclassification of of medical doctor. And so when you say we do autopsies, do you find that people even know that you're a doctor? No, most of the time uh, people are typically surprised about that anyways. I am, I'm what people have told me is that I'm very non-traditional and they wouldn't think that I was a physician in the first place. <laughs> but <What? I> like, <laughs> it happens all the time. They usually, they're very surprised to find out that I'm a doctor. Um, but for me, a lot of time when I like to use the word forensic pathologist, the first thing that jumps out to most people is like, oh, like Dexter. And it's like, no. I'm not a serial killer, but you know, I am, I am a physician that does perform a very respectful surgical procedure. Okay. Well, that's fair. I appreciate that answer. And I hear the comparison to Dexter or the comparison to a variety of other, you know, TV persona, TV medical examiners. And I don't know. Part of me likes it. Like, I don't like being compared to Dexter because this guy's a serial. Not only was he not a physician and he was not a medical examiner, but he also was a serial killer. And, and you know, so I don't love that comparison, but I do, at least in terms of medical examiners on TV, I kind of think it's cool because typically when medical examiners are portrayed, they're either portrayed as comedic relief and they're kind of fun and funny, which I like that as a portrayal for us because, you know, it's better than the alternative, which is the intense, morbid kind of wacky people that live in the basement. But of course, that's the other side of it is that sometimes they portray us as that intense, morbid person that lives in the basement. But usually they're they're borderline magic with the kind of stuff they can figure out. So I don't know. I kind of don't mind it. What do you think? I don't mind it either. I think that even in that capacity to have that exposure to forensic pathology and to you know have a little bit of insight as to what we do is always a positive thing. I should say mostly a positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> I have had quite a few interactions where TV has vastly misled people. And I don't, I don't know, what is it for you? What do you find that it, people are most misled by? You know, what, what do they think we can do or think we don't do that TV has taught them wrong? Oh, the, the, the fun things for me is that the um, cause of death and the toxicology results are immediately available. Oh, yeah. Which yeah, it's very misleading. Um, and sometimes the inaccurate terminology can be a little frustrating, but I understand it's, it's you know, talking in a way that most people would understand and, and can appreciate. Yeah, fair know? enough. I think I, I absolutely hear you about the sort of expediency with which we get results. I wish that it were like on television where, you know, at the <laughs> crime scene, I could say he tested positive for cocaine. That would be fantastic. But yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work like that. And I think, I think my, uh, the one that sort of bugs me the most is the ability to determine a time of death to, you know, within 15 minutes. It's like, I, as much oh, as that yeah, would be amazing. 
snow would be so incredible. But, you know, we're always just trying to do the best we can. But, yeah, if that, if that trend can go away, I would very much appreciate it. <laughs> well, I just, you know, on, on those TV shows, I'm trying to remember which show it was. It may have been Elementary, the Sherlock Holmes kind of modification. Um, but there was there was one show where someone did say something like that. The time of death was eight fifty, And they were like, how did you determine that? And they were like, well, it's on video. And I say, okay, well that's fair. That one we can actually get, you know, that's a good one. True. Yeah. Unless you're physically present in the room, it'd be really, really tough to pinpoint it. Yeah. So, uh, the rest of the podcast, typically what I talk about is what it has been like for you to become a medical examiner. And usually that is, is a question people have when they're interested in what we do. And it comes with, how did you get here? So can we talk a little bit about what life was like for you, say, starting in high school? Were you, uh, you know, a high achiever starting in high school or what was, what was that like for you? That's a good question. Uh, in high school, I was kind of very much like I am today, extremely extroverted. I really enjoy learning and academics, but I also still had a very rebellious side. So I was a good student that made poor choices every <laughs> once in a while. Okay. And I was a flautist and piccolo player in the marching band. So I was just a little all over the place. Interesting. And that worked perfectly fine for me. <laughs> so what did being extroverted look like for you? For me, being extroverted it has always been more about being okay with being my authentic self, um, where I, you know, enjoyed making other people laugh and smile. I was able to float around in different social circles and, you know, at least interact with the majority of different people. And um, even though I love to study, I, I didn't clamshell myself. I, I still like to get out and live some life and have fun in the process. Cool. Well, that's, that's not the stereotypical uh, pathologist or let alone a forensic pathologist, right? We're, we're kind of stereotyped in medicine as being, you know, maybe friendly, but certainly not extroverted. <laughs> I think I've broken uh, quite a bit of the defining rules and <laughs> in ways that people explain things, but yeah, I, I mean, possibly I've met a lot of pathologists that are, you know, very outgoing and very personable. So I don't think there's any set, you know, standard or definition that I'd I'd agree. There's a misconception that most pathologists aren't don't like to communicate with others or interact with people. But I find that in forensics, that's so far from the truth. And it's just such a gift to be able to, you know, do our work with our hands, to generate a well-written report, to verbally communicate, you know, our findings, and then to have the difficult discussion with family members in a way that they can understand. Yeah, I think that so takes think a little bit more people skills than uh, than we're given credit for sometimes. Absolutely. So you said that you loved academics way back in high school. So were you were you a high achiever? Are we are you valedictorian or where are we at? Oh, I was not. I was not good enough to be a valedictorian, and that's just fine. But I did graduate. I think with like a three point eight GPA. Nice. Um, I did really well, but I wasn't. Um, I was living in Iowa at the time, and my primary goal was to get out of Iowa and move back to Colorado. So <laughs> I bypassed the whole college admission thing and, and just didn't have anything figured out when I graduated. Oh, interesting. So what do you mean? You didn't go straight to college or what? No. In fact, I mean, I didn't sit for the SATs. I did sit for the ACTs. But I was very much geared towards, I don't know where I'm headed. I just need to move home and be back home in Colorado and I'll figure it out then. So what did you do after high school? Did you, so did, I take it you moved back to Colorado. Mm-hmm. That was, that was the first step. Okay. Goal achieved. And, yeah. and I had, I had randomly taken some auto body courses in high school. So I ended up working for an auto body shop out here in Colorado and I was doing, I was the parts supervisor and I would also do detailing and paint prep work of all things. That is awesome. So I, <laughs> I know absolutely nothing about, I, I mean, that is as foreign to me as I'm sure what we talk about is to many people. I, detailing, I know that's just essentially a really, really deep cleaning a car, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does a parts supervisor do? That's you're you're the one who is in charge of. I have no idea. I can't even guess. <laughs> this 
this was pretty cool. So it was like my first kind of legit gig outside of high school because I'd worked at fast food restaurants and grocery stores. But in that kind of role, I was in charge of any any vehicle that came in. I'd have to order the parts through different dealerships or salvage yards, and I'd have to acquire them, inventory them. But I think one of the coolest things was that we had contracts with different dealerships in the area. So I would get to drive all these cool like sports cars, like Vipers and Porsches. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go pick them up and, you know, be down the highway. And it was pretty fun. So at some point you're driving a, a Dodge Viper down the, down the highway and you decide, I think I'm going to go to college. It was, it was a little more, it was a little more different than that, but kind of essentially I started realizing um, that I, I didn't, this isn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Okay. Um, it was a family owned business. So there was some politics around that. And, you know, I'm starting to come of age and realize, oh my goodness, I don't want to be involved in this. Um, and then my twin sister ended up being diagnosed with schizophrenia. So it was a good opportunity for me to go and move back in with my dad. Cause that's where she was living and help her with that. And this is also in Colorado? Sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. We were separated from each other during high school because we were normal twins or quote unquote normal where we bicker and fight with one another because we're always trying to maintain our independence and individuality. So we were separated from high school, but I wanted to go back to Colorado because I love my sister and I wanted to be with her, you know? Yeah. Okay. So you go back to, you go back to Colorado and you end up living with your dad, uh, and your sister and she has just gotten a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And is that what led you to, did you at that time decide to go to college specifically to study, uh, to go to medical school or did you go into college with a different idea in mind? No, at that point I was still pretty clueless. Um, I ended up not working at the auto body shop anymore. And then I became a waitress. So I was, you know, um, a waitress and, you know, during my sister's early stages of her illness, she was still taking community college classes and she was always just incredibly smart. And so she started challenging me to like, oh yeah, I got an A in this class. I bet you couldn't do better. <laughs> like, oh yeah, well watch this Becky. So I went ahead and enrolled in the same community college and I, I started taking science courses and in some of the basics like English and math. And it just kind of reinforced that I, I really had a passion for biology and the sciences, but I, I still didn't know what I was going to do. Okay. Well, that's the first then, story I've heard of going to college kind of out of spite or at least one upsmanship. I've been telling you for years, I'm different. Eric. <laughs> <laughs> you know so then you, you did community college and you were like, okay, I, it turns out I love doing science, but you just didn't know where you were going with it. So take me, where, where'd you go from there? Well, here's where the story kind of takes an unexpected turn. So essentially I would, I would dabble, I dabbled in community college and waitressing and I kind of watched as my sister started to kind of go down the tailspin of her illness and she was a dialysis technician at the time mm -hmm. and she ended up having to leave her job and get on disability and she went through a flawed county health system to help manage her schizophrenia and to see what the medications did to her um, to see her body change over time, to develop this horrible sleep apnea and, you know, fall asleep when driving. It was terrifying. Wow. So to see that, I, you know, kind of reacted in my own way. I was, I was making, I was trying to understand and be there for her, but at the same time, I'm trying to figure out where I fit in at life. So it was a really storied time. And then in 2006, there were some blizzards in Colorado. And at this point, she had been, you know, we're 24. And she had been ill for a long time and in and out of psychiatric hospitals and emergency departments because her she'd have toxic levels of her medications. And she was coming home because she finally had the, the bravery to go out and see her friends for Christmas. And she ended up falling on some ice and she re-injured this back injury she had and she became bedridden. Wow. And so she ends up going to uh, uh, her doctor 
and says, look, I'm pretty sure that I have a slip disc. I just want a steroid injection and I'd like to be on my way. Thank you very much. And instead of that, the doctor was younger and more progressive and he put her on um, Flexeril, Oxycodone and Methadone on top of the 15 other medications that she is, you know, regularly taking to maintain her normalcy. And she did that for a couple days. And then there was a morning where she just didn't wake up. So it was, my twin sister died when we were 24. And it was very unexpected and very tragic for my family and I. So this is the turning point for me when I decide I want better for people. I'm going to get my act together and I'm going to go to finish undergrad. I'm going to go to medical school because I wanted more for people. That's a lot. That's a lot to deal with when you're 24, I feel like. Yeah, it was. I mean, that is just, I think, probably the defining moment that shaped the rest of the way I was going to pursue my life. (laughs) So at that point you had decided now you're going to get your act together and go to medical school. Did you change anything about the way you were pursuing school? Yeah. Instead of, I mean, this was literally two weeks after she died. I enrolled at the Metropolitan State University here in Denver, Colorado. And I finished, uh, some of my credits transferred, not all of them, but I finished a four-year degree in like two and a half years. Like I I took tons and tons of credits. I, I worked through summer and I even applied to be a forensic autopsy technician intern at the Denver office, the medical examiner while I was doing my coursework. Now, how did you hear about, that's a pretty niche job to, to even know about. How did you know about that? It was pretty neat. So there was one day I was walking down the hall in the science building and they had a bulletin board and they had a posting for the position. And I kind of had a moment of pause because I'd always, I was always fascinated by forensics, but I wasn't sure if it was something I could do. And I was still, this sounds bad, but I was still traumatized by my sister's death. But I knew that in order to be a doctor, you had to be able to accept death as much as you could life. And ultimately, I had a friend, his name is Jason. He convinced me to apply for the position. And lo and behold, I got the position. And I mean, the first time I walked into that autopsy suite and I saw my first autopsy, it was just like the clouds opened up and the sun is shining and there's a choir of angels. And it's like, yes, Amanda, this is what you're meant to do with your life. And I was floored. Tell me why. That's an interesting way. I mean, I I totally, I know where you're coming from, but I think that for most people, if you say, well, I saw an autopsy and I just knew that's what I want to do with my life. What What is it that you saw and that you felt that made that so interesting and, and seemed like something that you wanted to spend your life trying to do? What I thought was, was so fantastic about it is that I, you know, my first autopsy observed with um, a physician, a forensic pathologist that I just highly regard. Her name is Dr. Amy Martin. Um, she was a forensic pathologist at the Denver ME's office. And the way that she approached the case, you know, with such intricate, you know, eyes and attention to detail and pointing out what she was seeing and thinking and watching her dictate into her little microphone and then to go step by step and, you know, perform the evisceration and, and, and take notes. I was like, I didn't understand everything that an autopsy encompassed until that day. And then to kind of have an understanding initially of how somebody died, I realized that that was an opportunity for me to understand the words that I never understood in my sister's autopsy report. And it also gave me an opportunity to learn more about it so that down the road, I could help other people find their closure that my family and I never really got. So that's how I, that's, that's what I meant by the clouds opened up to me. It was like, this is something that you can do. And this is something you can do to help others. That's great. I love that. So then you took this experience at the working as an autopsy tech to, I, I, you were doing that during college. So then it sounds like maybe you went into medical school with the 
the idea that you were going to be a forensic pathologist as you were entering medical school? Of course. Wow. <laughs> there was no other field of medicine that I was remotely interested in. But do you think it really happened that way? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> My story just, you know, takes more twists and turns than a detective novel. <laughs> so what happened? So you, you are, uh, did you, did you go straight from college to medical school? Yeah, I did. I was very fortunate. There was a new osteopathic medical school that was, had just opened in Colorado. So I applied for that school and um, I was part of their second graduating class. Cool. So and, were yep, you applying right. specifically to for location reasons? Yeah, there was that. I cast my net wide. I recognized that I was more of a non-traditional student and I felt that the osteopathic principles and practice aligned more with how I wanted to approach medicine. But at the end of the day, like essentially MDs and DOs learn the same stuff in medical school. We just get a little extra training about manipulative medicine. Yeah. And by manipulative, I mean hands-on, not, not emotionally. Or, right. You know, right. So <laughs> physical, physical adjustments of the musculoskeletal system. Correct. You right. said it more eloquently than I ever could. Well, manipulation is what it's called, but it's uh, maybe doesn't mean <laughs> the same thing for all people. Correct. <laughs> so, okay. So you, you did go straight from college into medical school and you started with the idea of being a forensic pathologist. And my guess, I, I don't know, you can correct me, but were you the only one in your class that wanted to be a forensic pathologist? No, which was really? amazing. Um, yeah, we had, we were so fortunate. So one of our pathology professors, his name was Dr. Stephen Putoff. He was actually one of the co-medical examiners that helped address the Waco, Texas case, the David Koresh case. So he came in and like, you know, like wildfire and told us the story and was so you just were left enamored with his experience as a forensic pathologist, but he was also very gifted as an educator. So there were many of us that were inspired and, and really, truly enjoyed pathology. So there was other other individuals in my class that wanted to go into pathology, including forensics. That's so interesting. I feel like having some experience like that is so critical to it, the exposure for all fields, right? Because... I think most people have a general idea of what a lot of types of physicians do, right? ER doctors, they're kind of confused with trauma surgeons a lot of the time. And I think that's related to shows like ER. But I think because of shows like ER and because of shows like Grey's Anatomy and even Scrubs, people have a general idea of, oh, this is what a day in a life of being an internal medicine doctor or a cardiologist or an oncologist or any type of doctor could be. But there's not a lot of day in the life portrayal of medical examiners, you know. There is, but they're pretty fantastical. Like I zombie, she's a zombie medical examiner. So that's a little different. But, I have um, to watch that. <laughs> it's a, honestly, it's pretty good. The guy who plays her chief medical examiner, um, which, you know, I, I haven't encountered any chiefs that are quite the same as him, but I think he gives a pretty realistic portrayal of, he's just like a normal, cool guy who's interested in science and, and it's a pretty decent show. Uh, I'm going to slowly turn this <laughs> podcast into talking about my favorite TV shows, I guess. No, that's fair. Have, we haven't even talked about Quincy yet. There's Quincy. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that there's just not that much portrayal of forensic pathology. And I know that in medical school, typically most med schools nowadays are divided into the preclinical years, year one and two, and then the clinical years, three and four. And those first two years are often heavily taught by pathologists. And those years are often also very histopathology heavy. And so they tend to be taught by surgical pathologists and they give a very different image of what pathology is than what a forensic pathology would. So I, I, or a forensic pathologist would and so I think that it's really cool that you had that experience to learn from a forensic pathologist and someone who is able to talk about the kind of work that we do and the reason why they like it. So I think that sounds like a, a good thing. I hope more people are getting that opportunity. Oh, without question. It was, it was pivotal. And I agree. I think, you know, when people get into medical school and they start learning about pathology and all you hear is Robbins, Robbins, Robbins. And sure, Robbins is an excellent textbook and resource. There's so much more to pathology that so many people don't know. And I, I wish that 
in that clinical, in, I'm sorry, in the academic bubble, you know, pathology hangs by itself just fine. But then after that, you get one year of dedicated clinical experience and you're automatically supposed to know what you want to do for the rest of your life. And pathology is not a required rotation. Yeah, I that's wish true. That there is at least one or two weeks, like give us some credit, you, you know, for the <laughs> longest time, Eric, even before I became a doctor, I thought that, you know, you're waiting on a biopsy or lab results. I thought my doctor did that. That's a pathologist that did that. <laughs> No, I totally, I totally agree with you. I think that it's very difficult to, I, I think that honestly, that part of the issue is the field of pathology is very broad, right? And it's hard to describe because if you say, well, I'm a cardiologist, I treat the heart. Or even if you're a generalist, like someone like an internist, will you say, I'm a general doctor who treats the whole body for adults or a family practitioner. You say, I'm a, a family doctor and I take care of my patients in my clinic. And then when they need a specialist care, I can refer them to a specialist. But to talk to about pathology in that way, you have to say, well, I'm both a generalist and a specialist and I deal with biopsies, but I also deal with surgical specimens, but I don't take them out, but I do evaluate them and help guide treatment. And then additionally, I deal with autopsies and also I do the blood bank. I mean, there's sort of a lot that goes in the field and it's very difficult to give a concise, reasonable explanation that actually does cover what we really are trained to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My first day of actual pathology residency, I was floored. I had no idea what I was getting into because <laughs> I didn't have the exposure and I wish that there was more exposure just because it's so intimately interlaced in every field of medicine to know like who's behind, you know, grading and staging your cancer or reading your pap smear, you know, how that process goes about would be so beneficial because there wasn't a day that went by in my pathology training, much less my clinical years where I didn't appreciate what every other field of medicine had to bring to the table. You know, there's a reason there's such a robust consult service in medicine because we're trained to do different things. But as a pathologist, I think oftentimes we're kind of left in the dark, which is truly unfortunate because it's an absolutely beautiful field that really, you know, governs so much of medicine. So you went through all of medical school with the idea that you want to be a forensic pathologist and you knew that that meant that you needed to go into pathology. So it sounds like you probably went straight into pathology residency directly from medical school. Is that right? That is not correct. I no. told you. This was going to get interesting. <laughs> okay. Tell me about it. So um, I was told by multiple people in my medical school and in clinical rotations that, my goodness, Amanda, that would be such a waste of your talent. You are such a people person, and it would just be a disservice to medicine if you went into pathology. And being still reasonably young, I, I entered medical school when I was 27, I think. Um, I was impressionable, and I figured, oh, they might be on to something. You know, this is... I've only, you know, been an intern in forensic pathology. This is all I've been exposed to. They might be right. So I went into internal medicine. <laughs> Interesting. And so I want to point out that this is one of the questions that I actually get asked a lot on on the Reddit as well as occasionally on TikTok or, or wherever else is, you know, I'm not sure that I could ever go back to medical school because I'm too old now. I graduated college two years ago, so now I'm 25. And it's fun for me to hear because you just go, man, I know that I thought that way too, but I am telling everyone listening, you are not too old. <laughs> you absolutely can go back. And when you look back, you'll be like, yeah, I was definitely young. And I, I realize that now. And from what I hear, you're going to keep thinking that way. You're going to keep thinking, man, I did have a lot more time to do all these things that I wanted. And I just was so afraid of falling behind that I let myself fall behind. So Take that story and all the other ones you've heard and just remember you actually can go back to school if you want to do this. So oh, I had yeah. the same thing happen. You know, I didn't go straight into medical school. So I had these thoughts like, oh, geez, can I really start college when I'm 20? Yes. <laughs> you know, that's totally fine. Yeah, you can. <laughs> so how you long did you do? You could have lived in Iowa. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. How long did you do internal medicine? Oh, my goodness. Um, so I completed one year of intern training here in Colorado. And then I transferred residency programs to a program in Missouri. 
And I realized, you know, as much as I admired the hustle and everything that I'd learned, I appreciated the complexity and the patience are always my favorite. I love to interact with people. I just realized it was trying to put a, a square peg into a circle. It just wasn't working. And as much as I, it was a, it was a tough call to make, but I ended up leaving residency, internal medicine residency. There were other things behind it, but um, I ended up leaving and that was a huge call because that could be a, a death wish in medicine because a lot of people might not understand why you make the choices that you did. And again, I can't say enough where it's, it's really a challenge when you're in med school because you have four years, but essentially that's two years of academics, one year of clinical, and then your fourth year is pretty much dedicated to sub-internships, applying to residency programs because you have an idea of what you know you want to do. And you're kind of stuck there. So you better, you know, make sure that's what you want to do. So I was just kind of, I was terrified, but I, but I did it. Yeah. And then I had, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I know what you're saying about not having enough exposure during medical school to really know what you want to do. But I, I use my personal story as kind of a counter argument to that because I did know, I knew from first year of medical school that I was going to do emergency medicine. And I said that for the first two years. And then in my third year, every time someone asked, I told them I want to do emergency medicine. And I did three rotations plus my required rotation. And then in my fourth year, I did another three rotations in emergency medicine, including an externship or, you know, external rotation, whatever you call it at the place. I eventually matched my dream residency in emergency medicine. And it wasn't until about a year into my residency that I realized, you know, all the stuff that I liked about it is there, but I just still, it's not right for me. And so while I do appreciate, I would, I wish that people would have some exposure, right? I wish people would get at least a week to sort of get a chance to feel out a few different fields just to, you know, understand what happens in those fields. If nothing else, I don't know that having a year of exposure isn't even going to change anything because sometimes the practical life is just different. And honestly, some people change. I got, I'm a different person now than I was when I was 26 and making that call. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's maybe not, not necessarily the, the fix all to just get people exposed to the field because people are allowed to change their mind. Just like I know a lot of people, did exactly what you and I did, where we did something else first and realized, you know, I have nothing to say but uh, about emergency medicine other than that it's a great field. I think it's a wonderful field. It's very interesting. It's really cool. And it's also not for me. <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, I, I feel the same way about internal medicine. It's a cool field. There's a enormous opportunity for learning and to help people, but that's also not for me. And so, you know, I, I think that's okay too. I agree that your statement, and that's something I've always appreciated about you, like your journey, because ours did have some similarities where you're right. You know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for all the fields of medicine, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes it's just not for you, but that's a tough realization, you know, depending on the circumstances surrounding it. And ultimately what I'm very happy about for both of us is that we eventually got to where we wanted to be. And now we can flourish in the field and continue to learn more and, and provide more dedication to it, you know, to get more exposure to others. Yeah. So tell me, so you went Colorado to Missouri in internal medicine, Missouri, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Colorado to Missouri in internal medicine, and then you're in your second year of internal medicine and you're thinking this just isn't working. I'm a square peg trying to fit in a round hole and it's not going to happen. I want to transfer into pathology. So were you able to make that happen at your residency you were already at or what'd you do? Like I kind of alluded to, there were some other things that were going on in my life that I had to get straightened out. So I gave myself the opportunity to do that. And in the interim, I kind of, the, the medical, um, I'm sorry, the dean of my medical school that I graduated from, his name is Dr. Bruce Dubin. He reached out to me and he recruited me to come and teach for him at a medical school in Kansas City, Missouri. So it was another detour. 
So I ended up accepting that position and I started teaching at a osteopathic medical school in Kansas City, Missouri. And I was there for about three and a half years. Oh, wow. So you took a big break. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I did. And that was another scary thing. But um, during my medical school, I did a lot of tutoring and teaching. And so I felt very comfortable with it. And I really enjoyed the material. I did a lot of the infectious disease, standardized patients. I did. um, I was a course director. I was on the admissions committee at a medical school. I had so many opportunities that I never thought I would have ever been exposed to. Interesting. And I mean, the students I was able to work with were just incredible people. And to see that passion and zest for life and eagerness to learn and to see them pursue what they always wanted to do was a huge deciding factor for me. It's like, you know what, Amanda, like you have thought about being a forensic pathologist and medical examiner for 10 years now. And that never wavered. And so I figured it was time to go ahead and apply for pathology residency finally. And I did. And did you do it it at the institution you were teaching at? They did. Yeah. Like while I was a full-time instructor, like I, I went ahead and I applied for pathology residency. I had abundant support from a lot of the faculty members that I'd worked with and um, I went for it and it was scary. I knew that I was up against newer, fresher, younger applicants that probably had better board scores than me. I, I graduated in the top 10% of my medical school, but that was years ago. You know, I had one student doctor of the year, student doctor, um, congeniality, student leader of the year. I'd want, I'd, I'd excelled in medical school, but you know, here I am thinking, man, I'm past my prime. There's also other applicants from, you know, foreign medical schools, international medical schools that are, we're all competing for these spots. And so it was a very scary time, but it was also very exciting because it was, you know, everything that I ever hoped and dreamed for was like right there. I just needed somebody to give me that chance. And so what happened? Did they give you the chance? Yeah, yeah, they did. Okay. <laughs> I was, I was so grateful. Um, I, I began an anatomic and clinical pathology residency at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And after my first year there, I I decided to drop the CP because like you, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. Um, I knew the requirements that I needed to get there. And I was very lucky that I had the internal medicine background because a lot of the clinical pathology made a lot of sense to me. So it was kind of nice, like everything kind of worked out and just was additive to my journey. Yeah. I'll never, you know, I can never be grateful enough to the University of Missouri for that opportunity. All of us have these doubts. It's come up in every single interview I've done and just personally talking to my, my sort of fellow doctors and not just in pathology, not just in forensic pathology, but in general, All of us at some point suffered with some form of imposter syndrome or some form of I'm not good enough or I'm too old or I didn't do enough or I, you know, all of this stuff. And yet all of us are there. And unfortunately, once you get into medical school, it's not like that's the cure all for that, whatever it is that lives inside us that tells us that you're not good enough. But it's nice to once in a while be reminded that you're not the only one that feels that way. And chances are you're a lot better, better off than you think. Cause I mean, they took you and clearly you did well. And if you just look back at your accolades, right, you have so many positive things going for you, but you latched on to the negative thing. And I just know from talking to people who are in the pre-med part of this, this terrible, that terrible, terrible pre-med part where they just latch on to the things that are, here's the 25 ways that I know that I'm not good enough rather than seeing all the achievements they have. So I hope that some people can at least take from this, that it's, it's not as, uh, how do I say it? You can do it. And chances are you're latching on to the couple of negative things more than you should. Right. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, when you start reading up on what does it take to be a doctor and, and you read about all of the self-sacrifice and the time and the grades and the MCAT scores you need, it's very overwhelming. And it's easy to put yourself in a hole where you start doubting, like, can I even do this? But, you know, when you take a little step by step, and you make that progress 
and you study and you work hard and your effort pays off, you start building a little more confidence gradually. I think a lot of us, I, I, I guess maybe in my experience, I tend to have focused on the negative. I've kind of had that my whole life. I don't know if that was like an inferiority thing. Um, I don't know if it was because I was bullied a lot growing up, but I have this. You were, you were bullied? Myself. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, kids, kids can be cruel. And so a lot of that factored in. And my dad was in the Air Force. So we moved around a lot when I was growing up. So I never really had a set group of friends. I, I didn't have, wasn't fortunate enough to have those lifelong connections. So always transferring schools, being the new kid. There were so many things that kind of factored into how I viewed myself, like my self-esteem. And even though, you know, I was good at academics and I realized that I had some gifts for me, I, I wanted to focus on the negatives because to me, those were things that were fixable. But at the end of the day, anybody that has self-doubt and, and wonders if they can even do it, the simple fact is, is that if you're listening to this, you have gifts and attributes that only you have to offer. And there's only one of you. And if you pick yourself up and realize that you have the ability and the gifts and talents to touch many, many lives because of your sacrifice and dedication in your altruistic nature, you can and you will do it. And you just have to be your own number one fan. And now you've gotten to a point now where you actually did make it through, through all of those things, you, you know, moving back and forth for in and out of college, then, you know, through medical school, in and out of residence, two different residencies. And finally, you are now in forensic pathology fellowship. And in fact, you're, you're finishing up your forensic pathology fellowship. So let's go there. Tell me, where did you end up going for fellowship? The best part of this whole story is <laughs> for me, when I applied for fellowship, I, I reached out to the Denver office of the medical examiner where I did my technician internship. Oh, that's and awesome. That is where I, yeah. So everything has come full circle. Like where I started is where I'm going to finish. And I'm very humbled and honored that I was selected to be their fellow this year. Oh, that's and so it's cool. Just been an experience. Yeah. Are, are any of the same doctors there that were there when you were a tech? Unfortunately, no. Um, but I did actually run into one of the FPs that I did work with briefly while I was a tech. He's, he's a, an FP at a different county. But he came by and said hi, and it was great. Oh, Greatest that's so cool. name for a forensic pathologist ever, Dr. Carver. Cool <laughs> name. But yeah, so it's, it's kind of neat. But I mean, it's cool because we used to be in this hospital type of atmosphere across from this big Denver Health Medical Center in Denver. And now there's this beautiful new facility that's huge, bright, well lit, no creepy factor at all. And I have the pleasure of working and learning from some of the most amazing people I've met. So it's been a great experience. So what's your, what has it been like? How are you doing, I assume you do autopsies and you have scenes uh, like crime scenes and then you have some didactics. Yeah, a little bit of everything. So the unique thing about my fellowship is that I'm the only fellow. So for me, that means I don't have to compete for the case of the day. So anything horrible, horrific, learning experience-wise, it comes right to me, and I couldn't be more stoked about it. Okay. It's been a huge learning curve. I mean, between how to properly write a report, how to document your findings, um, but it's been so well worth it. There's four um, supervising forensic pathologists that are full-time at the Emmy's office, and they are nothing but um, approachable, amiable, extremely knowledgeable, and, and willing and eager to teach. So in that respect, it has been fantastic. And on top of that, the fun thing for me was when I was a tech, we didn't get to do any of the eviscerations. You know, I would open up heads and collect toxicology and help start, you know, maintain chain of custody, all that stuff sure. and, and do the cleaning because that's equally as important. Yeah. <clears throat> but the technicians now do the eviscerations like they're taking the pictures. I mean, it is a well-oiled machine with some of the best forensic technicians and, and exceptional people. It's just a real gift to work with them on a daily basis. 
Well, that's awesome. And yeah, we do have at Denver, we also have a scene requirement where we're required to go to 20 different scenes. So that could be anything from a natural death, but you know, hopefully, and I'm not going to say fortunately, hopefully, you know, the majority of those are suspicious deaths or homicide related deaths because you truly get to appreciate the way that everybody functions in their respective roles. So you get to interact with law enforcement, crime scene investigation, you know, if there's family on the scene, it's just, I don't know, it's kind of wild. I grew up watching Dateline and Forensic Files and to be in the picture is just mind blowing to me. It, it never gets old. I feel like it's a privilege and it helps you paint the picture of how that person died. With all the jobs that you had, you were in different fields in medicine, you taught in medicine, you had been in autopsy tech, you'd done all kinds of things, but I, I'm guessing that none of those included attending an actual crime scene. So was that the first time you ever did that? Was that in fellowship? Oh, that's a great question. Surprisingly, no. Oh, when um, did you do that before? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, here I am just like acting like an old shoe. So, um... <laughs> In medical school, I was able to um, rotate through the Arapahoe County Coroner's Office here in Colorado, and I spent a month with them. I convinced my medical school that an autopsy is a surgical procedure, so I got to count that as one of my surgery credits because surgery and I did not get along. I see. Um, but the unique thing rotating through there is that um, you got to not only experience you know, cutting organs and eviscerating the death investigators were phenomenal and you would go out on scenes with them. So it's funny because they, they reminded me that I actually am going to be joining the Arapahoe County coroner's office after my fellowship. So again, they remembered who I was. Wow. Full circle again. I was (laughs) It's just working out for me, man. I never thought that would happen, but I went to a scene where they found a body and I went out there in a dress and stiletto heels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's they, not, they maybe that. not ideal. <laughs> I know. So what was that I was like? I just happy to be there. Back in, back in medical school, you're sort of learning how to be a doctor and you talk them into giving you this great rotation and you go to a crime scene and, you know, what was it like for you going to your first homicide scene? It was really, I don't know. It was, um... Gosh, it was exciting um, because I feel as though I'm one of those people where even though I might have my wild streak or rebellious side, I, I generally try to respect the rules. So to be somebody that was privileged enough to cross the crime scene tape and walk into somewhere where it's an active investigation was just exciting to me. And, yeah. you know, to be able to just not say anything but stand back and watch and, and see how everything is governed and approached was just fascinating. And it was just unbelievable. It was just a great experience. Boy, that's such a crazy feeling, isn't it? When you, when you go under, typically someone holds the, the yellow crime scene tape up for you and you walk under it and it's like, what an odd feeling. I know. <laughs> I'm like, you're letting me in most. It's funny. Cause like my, the, the still like, you know, a lot of the officers and law enforcement people know who I am now, but when I first started, they're like, excuse me, ma'am, media is not allowed. And I'm like, what? Oh, well, did, were you carrying <laughs> we're a allowed. camera? They think I'm a journalist. No, I would oh, never well. do that. I respect, <laughs> no, it's because I still have my brand. I like to wear dresses and oh, I like I to wear see. my heels. And But it's just for me, I'm a representative of the office. I like to be professional and be a good ambassador and representative for the office I'm representing. So that's just why that ends up the way it is. That reminds me of I had when I was in Miami for my fellowship. I I still think about this because it was just so out of character for me. But I had a day typically when I went to work, I would either wear scrubs or I would wear dress clothes. I'd wear, you know, a button up shirt and and slacks, whatever you call them. Um, And I'd, I'd dress professionally. But there was one day when I believed that I was going to be on uh, what I call a paper day. So I wasn't going to be in the morgue. I wasn't going to be seeing anyone. I wasn't going to be interacting anyone. I would be locked in my office, just working on reports. And so on my way into work, I realized that I was just wearing like, you know, jeans and a uh, flannel t-shirt or a flannel, not t-shirt, a flannel, a flannel. 
And I realized that because I got a phone call that not only uh, was I not having a paper day, but I was on call and there was a crime scene that I needed to attend. And it happened to be right, basically right where my car was as I was driving into work. And so I said, okay, I'll come over. But, and as soon as I saw the detectives, I said, Hey, listen, I want you to know, I recognize that I'm not wearing appropriate attire for this moment, but this is what, where I'm at. And so it's either I go change or, you know, and I'll see you in an hour or I'll just do this now. And they said, that's fine. And then out of every crime scene I had, uh, which one would you guess the news vans all showed up to? So that was a <laughs> little embarrassing for me. Down. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't do that anymore. Now I, I keep a, a set of, you know, a jacket that says uh, forensic pathologist, <laughs> medical examiner on it. And I keep uh, I keep some spare clothes just in case, because I will not have that happen again. So wait, you have a cool jacket. Where'd you get your cool jacket? It was given to me by by the uh, by our lead investigator. I, I believe that all the investigators at our office have a jacket. It's like a, you know, a zip up that says medical examiner on the back. Or you could just have one made. Well, you could have a dress made that says that. (laughs) Don't tempt me with a good time. I'll (laughs) probably follow through with it. So I, I do want to, we're, we're getting close to an hour. So there are a few questions that I, I would really like to talk about. Um, one is, is, is there anything about having, been in this field and honestly you've been part of the field for so long is there anything about your involvement in the medical examiner world that has led you to change the way you live your life that's a really good question i think ultimately i think one of the greatest strengths of forensic pathology and just the field in general is that the dead are the ones that can really teach the living how to be better. So a lot of the the findings that we, you know, contribute on a death certificate goes into public health and, you know, vital statistics. So a lot of that generates data that the living face, and that's where money can be generated for research or people might be more interested in the field because they realize that there's many different disease processes that, they can focus their attention on to help people, you know, improve the quality of their life. So there are, there are things. So I tend to drive a little less aggressively, but in Colorado, sometimes that's impossible. (laughs) Um, I'm a big advocate for fitness and health. So am I a clean eater all the time? Absolutely not. But for me, I enjoy exercising. I go five or six days a week. Um, I try and take care of myself to the best of my abilities. I try and make good decisions as far as anything I try to do in my life. So it's just being a little more cognizant. And I've, I've realized that the worry of worst case scenario can sometimes creep up into my head regarding my friends and family and in my relationship. It's like, I just want the best for people. Does that mean I harp on it? No, but I do worry because I, I just care and I love the people that are close to me in my life. And I want that for everybody to feel cared for and to take care of themselves. Yeah, that's so hard, right? Because we all, you know, I think that that's not isolated to medicine or to forensic pathology. Obviously, everyone worries about the worst case scenario and everyone worries about their friends and their loved ones. But we have this unique perspective where we have a maybe a more accurate view of what is a real worst case scenario, because unfortunately it comes up. And so sometimes it does make, at least it makes me maybe a little bit overly cautious um, or maybe overly realistic. I don't know what to say about that. Like, I know that I, I, I really don't worry about plane crashes in the same way that I used to, but I do worry a lot more about my heart than I used to. Oh yeah, that is a, a great point. I, I think that's the, tough reality when I'll have, you'll have a case come in and you've outlived that person. Yeah. And sometimes that's very shocking. And it's like, you know, when you're younger, you don't necessarily, a lot of, a lot of people don't really go see the doctor or, or aware of their family health history. And these are all things that, you know, you, you hope people would know, but it's really sad when you have a young person come in and they have some natural disease that they didn't know about that ultimately, you know, led to their death. It's a hard realization. 
Yeah, I agree entirely. So on that on that note, I do typically end the the show with um, a couple of more lighthearted questions, just because I know we talk about a lot of heavy stuff. And so I do want to ask if you weren't a medical examiner, what would you want to do like both in and outside of medicine? Oh my goodness. That's a good question. Um, I think it's funny to me. I grew up, I went to Catholic school my entire life. So the first job I ever wanted to be was a nun, A nun. <laughs> but I don't see that happening now. Um, <laughs> okay. but honestly, that would be a dramatic change. <laughs> Oh, God would have a huge sense of humor. Um, no, you know, honestly, Eric, I'm I'm so fortunate to where for a long time, I, I didn't realize how fortunate I was, but I, I've been involved in many different career fields. Um, I can't see myself as being anything other than a medical examiner, but I guess that if I had to have a, a second option, I really do enjoy teaching. I have a lot of fun with it. Um, I've been told I'm okay at it. By okay, I mean pretty decent. <laughs> so if I had the opportunity to teach people, which is another great part of forensics, there's a lot of teachable moments. I would do that wholeheartedly all over again. Cool. So is that for both in and outside of medicine? So you teach either medicine or something else? I would teach medicine. But if I mean, if I really had my way, I would probably just foster dogs. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like seriously, dogs are the best. So Tell me about a time in your life, whether it's related to medicine or not, that you laughed really hard. You don't have, you don't have to tell me a joke. It doesn't have to be funny to me at all. I don't have to get it. I just want to hear about a time that you laughed really hard. <laughs> I try and make that a daily practice. Good. Um, <laughs> the other day, I mean, um, there was a day Actually, all of the autopsy techs and I, we get along so well. And the last time that I laughed so hard, there was, we're doing a case and sometimes things do bother me. And it was, the individual was still relatively warm and had a, a buffet of stomach contents that were just chunky. And I started <laughs> dry heaving and I'm crying, like trying to hold it in. And the tech is trying to make me vomit and I look over at him and he's laughing so hard that he's crying. And then I start laughing so hard. I cry even more. Like it was just because what we do is so graphic, but we always find a way to laugh. When Absolutely. We're working. And it's, yeah, it's great. I, I laugh, uh, at least once a week, this memory will pop into my head from the job I have currently. Uh, when I first started here, you know, they, all the techs have to get used to the, you know, the way a certain doctor says something or, you know, our, our different shorthand that we write on the board or whatever. And I had a case with one of our new techs and I had written next to where we keep track of the quantity and quality, uh, you know, appearance of the urine. So where it said urine, I had written 500 clear because I was just saying there was 500 cc's of clear urine. That was the way I wrote it. And she, it, she started cracking up in the corner and I had to figure out what, what are you laughing at? And she told me that she thought that my five was an S and that when the, next to urine, I had written so clear. <laughs> and every day I think about that. She, that was her first impression of me is that I went up to the board and I was like, this urine was so clear. And I just, I don't know. It makes me laugh at least once a week. I think about it. I love it. I'm having a great time in my job. It sounds like you are too. And um, yeah, is there anything else you want to say to anybody? No, I just, um, I really appreciate what you're doing, bringing forensic pathology to the forefront and, and giving us the opportunity to tell our stories about how we got to where we are. And if I had a second, I'd, I'd just like to thank my friends and family and my partner for being so supportive of my endeavor because I, I we don't get anywhere in life without the support and encouragement of others. And so without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. Oh, that's and very thank you sweet. for this opportunity. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And thank you for telling me what it's been like for you becoming a medical examiner. 
Um, yeah, so if you're interested in what we do and you want to learn more, I recommend going to the Reddit. That's reddit.com slash r slash forensic pathology. And if you're interested in forensics, but you don't necessarily want to be a forensic pathologist, you can always go to r slash forensics, where there's a lot of different forensic professionals who can tell you more about what they do and what it's like to be part of their field. Um, I also think that if you want to contact the name, that's the National Association of Medical Examiners official website, that's thename.org. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of outreach. It is geared a little bit more towards people who are already forensic pathologists. But if you're looking to hire a forensic pathologist for a private autopsy or something like that, it's a great resource. So, uh, Amanda, do you have any social medias that you use and you want to share? Currently, no. I, I have a Facebook. You are welcome to find me on there. It's currently deactivated, but I'll reactivate <laughs> it. And <laughs> sometimes I take breaks because, I, you know, if I'm, I'm heavily involved in casework, I need a break. That's um, fair. But I also have an Instagram. It's AJ Polymerase because I'm a huge nerd. Um, you can find me on there as well. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next time on Becoming a Medical Examiner. 